Matthew chapter 8. If uh, you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a chair near you within reach somewhere. Definitely grab one so you can follow along with our study, see the words, the inerrant Word of God for yourself. Matthew chapter 8. Matthew's in the New Testament, sort of towards the end of your Bible. Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Matthew chapter 8. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Matthew. We'll be in verses 28 through 34 for our study this evening. Well, C.S. Lewis, who you may have heard of, uh, was a Christian and wrote many helpful things about life, both uh, fiction and nonfiction, about the Bible and Christianity. One particular book he wrote called The Screwtape Letters is a work where it's, uh, Lewis writes from the standpoint of, of, of an older, wiser demon, an older, wiser demon named Screwtape. And the book is several letters, a few dozen letters from this older demon, Screwtape, to his young and experienced demon nephew, Wormwood. And what he's doing is Screwtape is giving advice to Wormwood on, on how to uh, lead human beings astray from Christ, how to turn their affections from Christ, basically how to pull them away from salvation in Christ. In the book, Lewis demonstrates a profound understanding of human nature, the fickleness of humanity, sin, how and with what we humans are tempted from God, and so on. The demons are often discussing uh, the craftiness and the very, the, really, frankly, the ease with which often we are able to be distracted from uh, rational thinking, from serious thinking about God and how we're able, uh, our, our affections and our hearts are, be able to, are able to be easily dampened from following Christ and the glory of Christ. It's a profound little book. But in the preface, C.S. Lewis, he writes this critical truth about understanding Satan and demons. He writes this, quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, human race, can fall about the devils, about the demonic realm. He says this, one of the errors is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other error is to to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, they themselves being the very real demons. There's There's a danger to disbelieving truth in general, the truth of the Bible, every word being true and factual. And not the least of which is the spiritual world, the world of demons and Satan. Some have accused that believing in such things is primitive, the primitive thinking of simpletons. Uh, really, uh, such beliefs, they say, are mythical bygones of medieval times. We're, we're more advanced now. After all, we do not see these kind of things, and science doesn't seem to be able to observe them. Therefore, they must not exist. But of course, that line of thinking is actually primitive. For example, not many years ago, when germs were sort of being discovered, many rejected the idea that such a thing existed. We can't see germs, therefore they must not exist. Science is unable to determine their existence right now, therefore they must not exist. Those germs, by the way, were not particularly concerned if anyone believed in them. Disbelief in those germs had... No determination upon their existence, nor the damage they are able to do. 
It was merely the primitive thinking of human beings. So it is with demons, the unseen realm. Our disbelief in no way hinders or changes the fact of their existence. Their work, like germs. Demons, in reality, as C.S. Lewis writes in his book, they, they are quite happy with you thinking that they do not exist. They are quite happy with you underestimating their power and thinking they have no influence on you. In our study this evening, we arrive at a passage which really documents a a factual, historical, bizarre event. Christ's encounter with demons in the supernatural, spiritual realm. For that reason, we're going to take some time to let the Bible speak on this very misunderstood issue. Satan and demons. So would that follow along as I read verse 28 through 34 of Matthew chapter 8. Verse 28 through 34. The Word of God says, verse 28. When he, Jesus, came to the other side, that's the other side of the Sea of Galilee, into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of the swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave, (laughs) to leave their region. So Christ, a little context here, along with a handful of his disciples, they are, have, they are traveling through the Galilean area. He has just miraculously calmed the storm. Christ is demonstrating himself to be God and Savior around the Sea of Galilee, this area where there are many villages at the time, powerful miracles, healings, great works of compassion, all which serve to demonstrate his deity and his supremacy. And so here we are on this encounter with the demonic realm. This supernatural realm, and we'll do a little mini-study on Satan and demons to understand this this subject. And it's critical as a way of uh, a preface that the Word of God, the Bible, will dictate how we understand these things. Uh, I don't know why. I think I know why, actually. But Hollywood too often dictates our understanding of the spiritual, supernatural realm. It ought not be that way. Don't get your demonology from Hollywood. Uh, I will quote now and then from a very helpful little book, not the only one, but the helpful one called Demons, a Biblically Based Perspective by an author named Alex Konya that I would commend to you. Now, a few things on Satan, sort of uh, as we lay out the carpet here. Number one, of course, he is real. He is a created spirit being. Satan uh, was an angel. He was the chief of all angels prior to the creation of the earth. Scripture suggests Uh, that he was uh, the chief angel. He is not, as the false religion Mormonism teaches, he is not the brother of Jesus. You will not find that in Scripture. That is a false teaching. 
Uh, he is an angel, again, the chief. He rebelled against God long ago and was judged. He is the open enemy now of God and the author of evil and sin. When he was cast from heaven, a huge number uh, of angels, uh, some theologians believe about a third, fell with him. Those angels are now demons. They are fallen angels. They are demons. So they're very supernatural beings, angels being extremely powerful, spirit beings. They opposed Christ. They, they're, they're really, uh, their modus operandi is to deter people from Christ. They love false religions, or they love religions and cults that look a little bit like Christianity, uh, but are not. And they love to, uh, sometimes in obvious or not obvious ways, deter people from Christ. They also disguise themselves as good. 2 Corinthians 11.14 teaches this, that they come as angels of light. They don't come with tails, uh, Italian goatees, and pitchforks. They don't necessarily care if, they, if you can recognize them and their work. They do a lot of work doctrinally. They like to, to, to smear and distort doctrine. We see that in Genesis 3 when Satan comes along and starts questioning the Word of God. That is fundamentally what they do. We also see this in Matthew 4 in the temptation with Jesus. You see Satan actually misuses the Bible. It's one of the great things that they seek to do. There again, they, they seek to destroy humanity. And again, they're content that people disbelieve in them. They can be more effective. And they are not to be scoffed at. They're very powerful. Passages, for example, Job 1 and 2 and 1 Kings 22, I'd recommend those for outside reading just to see how powerful these are. They do things like create false prophets. God even allowed that in 1 Kings 22. God says, who's going to go down in the minds of the false prophets and trick some of the people to believe false doctrine? And it is the demons that go and do that. They're behind these things to create seeker-friendly doctrine, seeker-friendly churches, and these kind of things. It's not out of the spectrum of demons to do these kind of things. So there's a great battle happening, a very real battle. By the way, a real battle for your soul, for the souls of human beings to, to pull you away from receiving the love and the forgiveness of Christ, if you haven't yet bowed your knee to Jesus, or to pull you away from persevering in Christ. This is what they do. To darken the minds of people towards Christ. To harden the hearts of people towards Christ. To dim the intellect. To dim your intellect from Christ. To cool off zeal for Christ. This is what they do. Just like you cannot see many battles happening in you physiologically, battles of your immune system, for example, fighting off various microorganisms, spiritually it is the same. There is a constant battle going on that the Bible speaks of. By the way, the work of Satan is not restricted to things like Ouija boards and crystal balls. Um, those things are cardboard and glass. There is no inherent evil in cardboard and glass. They are objects. Evil is inherent to Satan and his demons. And in the heart of man, what man does with these things in pursuing false religion. It's what we do with sin. Christ died for sin, by the way. It's how we respond to the temptations that the demonic realm put before us that is potentially sin. So with that, our main idea for the study then is this. It's also in your bulletin. Though we do not have, we do not have the strength to overpower these kind of things, the wisdom to understand it all, that is the spiritual and supernatural realm. Christ, 
our, our Lord. He is Lord over the very real and powerful spiritual and supernatural realm. That is absolutely fundamental. You might be thinking, well, if we don't have the power, how are we going to stand? It's precisely because Christ has the power over it that we do stand. We'll get into that in the study. Six truths then for our outline on salvation and Satan. Six truths on salvation and Satan. Six truths on salvation and Satan for our outline this evening. Number one is this. Christ, Christ seeks to save and transform those with great need. He seeks to save and transform those with great need, which is all of us. Those with great need, especially phys- uh, excuse me, spiritual need. Especially those like all of us who are potential objects of the destruction of the satanic realm. Look with me at verse 28. When he came to the other side in the country of the Gadarenes. Stop right there. So Christ and his immediate disciples, their ministry rarely stops. This event follows the calming of the raging storm with a mere word, an absolute extraordinary display of power. Before that, all of the healings in chapter 8. They go into this region called the Gadarene region. It borders the east side of Galilee. Uh, A quick picture. Uh, you can, it's a little hard to see there, I apologize, but on the left side of the picture, you see these steep cliffs. Those, as we read, will be the cliffs that the swine run down. That, off to the east there is the Gadarene region in the Sea of Galilee. Few scenes in Christ's ministry were more shocking than this one, not only because of his power over the supernatural realm, but because of something more. He intentionally goes... Seeking out people who had two major barriers for most individuals in that day. Number one, the Gentiles, this, this non-Jew, the Gadarene region was a non-Jew region. And number two, demon-possessed. In the minds of many of religious Jews, in that day, the only thing more off-limits than a Gentile were the demon-possessed. Having those two things meant you were, you were really spiritually and socially, you were the quarantined of the quarantined. The most quarantined socially and spiritually. You can take the picture down, thank you. You were doubly quarantined. Contact with such individuals would render them ceremonially defiled by Jewish standards. Doubly unclean. Spiritually unclean. Even so, Christ, out of compassion... And to display his power. Now that we would know for sure who is superior over these things. Goes to these type of needy people. It's the way he works. It's his mission. As he said in Luke 5 among other places. Luke 5 verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes begin grumbling at him. Saying why do you eat and drink with, with tax collectors and sinners. With these so to speak off limits people. Why do you do that? Jesus answered. It's not those who are well. Not that the Pharisees are well. And their hypocrisy, their applauding of their own morality, they were triply sick. It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick, speaking spiritually, have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That is, that is Jesus' mission. 
to call sinners, which is the fundamental commonality of all human beings demonstrated in this event. Christ seeks out those who understand their need for him. Lessen the need, not in terms of financial material, but spiritual. And we know we all have equal need because of this event, the cross of Christ. This one solution to the spiritual, moral destitution of humanity. The fact that there is one solution, the cross, demonstrates we are all equally in need. Christ is not uh, doling out the cross for, you know, the real spiritually, moral, needy people. And then sort of 50% of the cross and, well, 50% charitable deeds for others because not everyone is in need. No, that there is one solution for all humanity to be right with God, to go to heaven. That demonstrates we all have equal need. One cross, one equal problem, one human race, depravity, moral depravity. And our loving Lord Jesus Christ came down from heaven to seek sinners, which we are all of that stock. And equal need is the demoniac you and I are. It begins then. Knowing Christ going to heaven begins with admitting we're no better than the spiritually quarantined of the quarantine. That I need rescue from sin and Satan just like them. These are the ones whom Christ seeks after. Christ is the only seeker, by the way. Because as Romans 3 says, there are none who seek God. Christ seeks us. Number one. Number two. Satan and his forces are capable of great damage. Great, great damage to people. Satan, this unseen realm, are capable of great damage. Great, great damage. And though I, I really appreciate, as I've been to France many times and around Italy and looked at old Gothic cathedrals, I love the gargoyles that stick off. It's not gargoyles that are going to guard us. It's not gargoyles that are going to be the solution to the damage Satan does. Something else. But they're capable of great damage. Look at verse 28. Two men who are demon-possessed met him as they are coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass that way. Frightening scene here. Now, what is this demon possession all about? I want us to do an excursus, a little demonology here. And a qualifier, simply because an individual experiences some of these things we will mention does not automatically mean they are demon-possessed. Rather, these are some of the things you will see in demon possession. Number one, of course, it is real. Of course, demon possession is real. A definition of it from Alex Konya, I'll put it up here. It's the invasion of a victim's body. By the way, that should say someone who is not a Christian. Someone who is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Who is not wholeheartedly trusted in Christ, invasion of their body by a demon or demons in which, excuse me, the demon exercises living and sovereign control over the victim, which the victim cannot successfully resist. Now, this is different from demonic influence. Demonic possession and demonic demonic influence are not the same things. Scripture teaches that demons can influence or be a catalyst even for believers uh, to sin, to believe false doctrine, for others, non-believers as well, though they may not be possessed to be influenced in this way. James 3, 13-16 says, Demons influence people to be self-centered. 
to be jealous, to be self-exalting, self-worship behavior. Demons are not forcing them to do it. it man is culpable, but they influence it. James three, thirteen to 16. Yikes, right? So demons are, they're not so much about music and yoga as they are self-centered behavior. Self-preferring behavior. Self-preserving behavior. Self-exalting behavior. Self-flattery. Self-esteem. Self-praise. That's what the demons are more into. Not 4-4 beats and punk rock. They want you to worship and, and enshrine yourself in all you do and your thoughts. Demonic influence. Well, demonic possession, number two, it's miserable. It is absolutely miserable. I mean, look what these guys have been subject to. Alex Konya, he says, things like wildness of character observed here, violence towards others, violence towards self, physical impairments, self-mutilation, torment of the individual. individual. It would have been just terrible. Unspeakable horror to be subject to this. Pain, suffering. Third, altered personality. It's observed in Matthew 8. He had a far different demeanor after the demons are purged. It means he had a different demeanor before as well. Number four, impossible for the regenerate. Demon possession is impossible for the regenerate. The regenerate cannot be demon-possessed. Regenerate is just another term for those who have genuinely been converted to Christ through faith in the person and work of Christ. It cannot happen. Why? They're possessed by another spirit, capital S, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is more, way more powerful than a demon spirit. Praise God for that. He seals us, Ephesians 1.13. He secures us. We don't really know how a person becomes demon-possessed. We can't say for sure that, well, this behavior, that sort of uh, external environment makes us more susceptible. Yes, it's more observed in, in the Scriptures in the first century, probably because Christ was on the scene, so it shook up that realm, other cultures, perhaps. Fifth. They appear to do good, to, to, excuse me, they appear as an angel of light. Already talked about this. Because they do, that makes it possible, sometimes difficult, to discern demon possession. To discern. It makes it difficult sometimes to discern when it's happening. Again, he's very clever. Much of his work is done with a dash of, of good not all demon influence will look like this, though the majority of it does. Again, C.S. Lewis says we need to avoid that excessive and unhealthy interest. As if we're, we need to be real careful that we're not sort of pretending like we're some kind of demon private investigator. Hiring ourselves to determine, okay, I've, I've identified the, the, the demon of gossip and, and the demon of slander and, and the demon of of indifference. Got to be real careful about that. The insomnia demon, the, the passive husband demon, the I don't feel like going to church demon. Might be easier if we did it that way, but Scripture does not support those things. Many of us 
Christians, we can act, ask, excuse me, act as if we're sort of these demon ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? Well, call me. Make it a point to start speaking words over demon. Bring in this supposed faith healer pastor to this conference, that exorcism service. Come to this and all your problems will be solved. Scripture supports nothing along those lines. You may have heard of these things. Demon deliverance church services. Have you heard of this? They're just called deliverance services. Where a church service will rally. Uh, some big event will be held strictly for the purpose of purging people of, of demons to deliver them from demons. So and so church, they'll, they'll, they'll put out flyers or advertise this uh, event where some supposed individual with extra power will stand up, chant some chants, some words, claim powers over demons deliverance service claim that this sort of problem with people are so-called demonic strongholds in a person then it sort of all goes away the sickness demon the the very sin causing demon we have no biblical grounds for doing these kind of things none no matter despite how popular they are these kind of things suggest that our struggles as christians can be kind of pixie dust and purged right out of us with magical incantations of an erroneous pastor. We have no biblical grounds for such methods, though they are popular in entertainment, sensational-driven Christianity. Instead, we can rest that we have a far more, far more effective type of deliverance service, if that's what you want to call it. The ordinary means of grace and growth in Jesus Christ. The normal life stuff which God commands us to do. Trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Run to Him. Plug in fully and meaningfully to Bible-believing, sound New Testament churches. Get accountable. That's how we get delivered, if you want to say, progressively. Whether it's a demon or whatever it is. Sitting under Bible teaching. Studying the Bible. Praying regularly. Serving. Giving our lives to Christ. Being accountable to biblically qualified leadership. Serving God. Speaking the simple message of Christ crucified and for sinners to others. This is how deliverance happens. Yes, there might be extreme situations. Again, but prayer and the Word, we'll look at that in a minute. We depend on Christ to work. Otherwise, with these kind of deliverance hyped up things, we suppose that, well, if we get a cool enough event, if we get a, a hyped up enough event, enough energy and, 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 and zeal, then deliverance will happen that way. If, if, we, if we can just do it cool enough with our events and our, and our shallow, frankly, church services, it doesn't depend on us. The ordinary means of grace... Otherwise, it becomes far more about hoping in some need event or some guy than in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit of the Bible. As we see in Matthew 8, the demon-possessed individual, he, did, he needed no deliverance event. He needed no big church service. No big faith healer. No fanfare. No special music in the background with dramatic stage effects to sort of climax the whole thing. He needed none of that. He needed the power of Jesus Christ, the Word of Christ alone. Isn't that comforting? Isn't that comforting? We don't have to chase after some, like we're on tour with a 
proverbial spiritual grateful dead looking for the cool of enough event to get us hyped up. None of that. None of that. Praise God. Six, we're not commanded to engage or exercise demons. We are not commanded to engage or exercise E-X-O-R-C-I-S-E to be exorcists. We're not commanded to engage them or cast them out. That was for Christ and the apostles only. A couple individuals related to the apostles during the apostolic time. The apostles did it, right? Yes, but they had a uniquely commissioned office. Christ appointed the apostles. There are at least three criteria for an apostle. Christ had to personally tell you and appoint you as an apostle. You had to see the risen Christ for him to appoint you to do so. Number two. And number three, you had to have the apostolic gift of miracles and healing, which nobody has today. It was an apostolic gift, a glorious gift for apostolic times to lay the foundation of the church. That's why they had this miraculous gift under which was the ability to exorcise or cast out demons. These men had powerful abilities. Further, let's consider what might happen if we consider ourselves an apostle, capital A, with the ability to cast out demons. Exhibit A, Acts chapter 19, we'll put it up here. Verse 13, some of the Jewish exorcists, I want to encourage you to check out, look, look, look at this fascinating event. Some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those. That's something you see a lot today. Just name over the demons. I watched a video of this yesterday. Evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. I mean, he even used the right words. Seven sons of one Sceva, Jewish chief priest. I mean, they were even at the top of the chief priests. They had religious status. They were doing this and the evil spirit answered, watch this, and said, I recognize Jesus and I don't know about Paul, who was an apostle, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Seven, this demon possessed guy takes seven guys on his own. And sons of the chief priest, probably young, fit dudes. He takes them, no problem. Sends them running naked for their lives. This became known to all the, verse 17, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus and fear upon them. Fell upon them all in the name of the Lord Jesus being magnified. You're not an exorcist, friend. Neither am I. Jesus is the exorcist now by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can leave it up to, we can, we can just say, Jesus, man, that's your category. That, those kind of things, that's your category, Lord. We depend on you. Alex Konya, again, he says, the Bible warns forcefully against attempts to contact or extract information from the spirit world. The believer is to rely on information that God has provided through the word. Interestingly, the final demon expulsion we see in the New Testament was around here, 55 AD. 55 AD, after that, we don't see people doing that. And if it happened after the apostolic era, of course, it was Christ doing it as God's people simply relied on him and prayed to him. So what should we do then? Does that mean we're helpless? If, if we suspect demons are time, trying to 
draw us away or if we encounter a demon-possessed individual or, or, or some kind of experience with the supernatural realm? Does that mean, what, what should we do? Of course, we're not helpless. Cry out to Christ. We cry out to Christ. And we, we stay plugged into the ordinary means of grace. God's people who challenge us to grow, who love us, saturated with the Word of God as we read in our opening reading this evening. We take up the full armor of God, Ephesians 6.10 through 17. Things like prayer, faith, trusting in Christ. Really, all, as you go through the armor of God, all those are about doctrine. They're all about doctrine, about the Word of God, the Gospel, faith, trusting in the right God, salvation, of course, the sword of the Spirit. Prayer. These are the armor of God. Rather than looking to our own abilities or trying to figure out, okay, like, what cool thing did I see with some faith healer? No. We just trust in Christ and the ordinary means of grace. Look, friend, if those are the ways which Christ saves and sanctifies, transforms the soul, totally miraculous things. Salvation being born again to Christ, becoming more like Christ, if those are the ways that God uses to perform these incredible miracles of salvation and sanctification, we can trust that there'll be enough for everything else. The demonic supernatural realm. The armor of God. Interestingly, that it's the sword of the Spirit, the chief weapon of the Spirit, is the Bible. You don't divorce the Spirit from the Bible. Well, you're about the Word, I'm about the Bible. That's a, that's a non-existent dichotomy. You see, Jesus used the Word of God again in Matthew 4 when He's tempted by Satan. Staying in the Word. Growing in the Word. This doesn't mean, this doesn't mean we throw out a verse like it's a, a spiritual hand grenade. Like a one time, just, just say the words of the verse and it'll blow the demons away. No, it's more the idea of trusting in God's words. Growing in His Words, knowing the Word of God, meditating in the Word of God, preaching the Word of God to ourselves. The daily hour, hourly progression of uh, strengthening spiritual muscle, mental muscle, in the storms of life of being under the Word of God. We can trust in those resources that God has given us. This book is enough by the power of the Spirit. Alex Konya, again, he writes this, the believer is to march forth carrying out the Lord's commands. His attention is to be centered upon Christ and His will, which is the Word, rather than seeking to battle with Satan. I, I think there's a lot of pride sometimes in this, like, man, I fought Satan. You know, I heard one hip-hop artist, a Christian hip-hop artist recently said, I kick Satan in the teeth. No, you don't do that. Sorry, you're not doing that. He is infinitely more powerful than you, friend. We bow we, we read the Bible, we go to church, we trust Jesus. Satan will destroy you. Again, read Job 1 and 2. Read, read his capabilities over weather, over cultures, over disease, death. The enemy is never to be taken lightly. Satan and his demons are intelligent, powerful, and resourceful foes. If ever a believer seeks to achieve victory over them with his own strength or methods... He will surely fail. Therefore, the believer needs to be clad in the armor of God. 
the armor of God. Again, all the normal graces. By the way, if we suspect demonic influence upon ourselves, we're still responsible to obey. To obey Scripture. To plug in. And if you, as I have been, I have been seen some weird, bizarre things. As prior to Christ, I was involved with Wiccan and bizarre neo-paganism kind of stuff. Crazy stuff. I could not explain. If you feel that you're encountering this kind of thing or experiencing unexplainable spiritual things, either unintentionally or intentionally because you're into Wiccan or whatever it might be, you don't need to, you don't, what, this is what you do not need to do. You don't need to sit there and try to dissect it all. You first admit that this very well could be real, but then second, you go to Christ, you go to the means of grace and power over this, the armor of God, the, the normal means of grace. You don't have to understand what it all is. You just go to Christ and His Word. And for the unbeliever, his solution is he needs to be saved. He needs to be saved by turning to Christ. Alex Konya again, he says, this is the only true and ultimate solution for his problem with demons. Apart from putting on Christ, the unbeliever remains in Satan's realm and has no ultimate defense against renewed demonic attack. But when a person turns to Christ as Savior, he's translated automatically into the kingdom of God. The Lord may thus uh, count it upon to free his new child from this control of Satan, including possession. I want us to see the sufficiency of God in his word that he has made available to us. And all these bizarre things that just sort of fascinate our fallen sensationalism. By the way, we don't encounter the idea in Scripture that walls or buildings or inanimate objects are sort of possessed by demons. Sometimes well-meaning people will say, well, before we move into this building as a church or as a family, we need to go pray and walk through it and pray over the walls and, and sort of pray towards on the doorposts and in the yard because there's, the house is haunted and so we need to do that. You don't find that in Scripture. You just don't. I think we can sort of get hokey in these things. And if you do suspect that that kind of thing is happening, then pray to Jesus. Just, Lord, you're sufficient. If there's some whack stuff going on in here with demons, I just pray that you would help me stand in the armor of God and trust in the Word of God. In Psalm 56.3, when I'm afraid, I trust in God. I don't pray to walls. I don't kick walls or exercise walls. We don't do that. We trust the Bible and our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't need to name name over demons. Sadly, all of these things are many, very popular in all kinds of strains of Christianity, not the least of which is some charismatic teachings, these, these superstitious formulas, which really these things more resemble kind of a pagan magic than biblical Christianity. It has the appearance, of, the appearance of worrying and scurrying around like we're some kind of Christian Harry Potter wizard trying to figure out the right recipe in the Hogwarts exorcism magic book to find these things. We can simply rest in Jesus 
and the words of the Bible, the, the Spirit of God. But the problem is that that doesn't always satisfy us. It's, it's too plain. It's not, it's not sensational and flashy enough for us, is it? We want to be a Christian Harry Potter, don't we, sometimes? We, many of us want to go to a church where it's like the Hogwarts school of wizardry and witchcraft. We want competitions with spiritual Slytherins and all these kind of things. We can trust the Bible. Christ alone is sufficient. We go to Him. Christ used various methods, by the way, to deal with demons. Sometimes a word, sometimes no word, sometimes a thought. Never a hyped up event. But when He did, the, the expulsion of the demon was instantaneous. And it never came back. By the way, sometimes demons can come back. Matthew twelve thirty four teaches. I saw a video yesterday of a guy, he was swinging his arm at an individual who was supposedly demon-possessed 30 times. And he was making punching sounds in the microphone. And then it and, and, and it took him 30 times, and then supposedly the snake demon came out of the guy. Christ just would say a word, go. Go. Because frankly, he and the apostles are the only ones that can do this. The point of these passages is not to say, hey, trust in this method, these exact words to fight demons. But hey, trust Christ. Trust Him. Again, as Alex Conia writes, I'll put it up here. His, Jesus, deliverances were always simple, straightforward, immediately successful. Modern so-called deliverance ministries are at best a mere shadow of these mighty miracles. People today certainly do not cast out demons in Jesus as Jesus did. Our Lord is in complete mastery, praise God, over the forces of darkness. He can still exercise his sovereign authority to deliver and protect from demon, demonic invasion. Yet in casting out demons, note this, Jesus was not giving lessons in exorcism. He was demonstrating clearly who he was. Who he was. We depend on him, on the Holy Spirit. By the way, pray often for the power of the Holy Spirit, believers. Pray often for the power of the Spirit. He's the stronger spirit than the demon spirit. He illumines our eyes to Christ. He ignites affections for Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, we're dead. We're dead. Number six. Number seven. Demon, demonic possession is not a physiological disorder. We should note this briefly. It's not a physiological disorder. Though some have claimed it was in years past. The, the, the cause is purely spiritual. It is not physical or organic. Though there might be some symptoms that become physiological. That is possible. But this is the demons. This is spiritual in nature. Demons also, by the way, they can carry on rational conversations. They dialogue with Christ. They say to the sons of Sceva, who are you? I don't know you. You don't have any power. And they bum rush the guy. So they, they, can, they can think rationally. Which brings us to number eight. They have supernatural abilities. Supernatural abilities, super knowledge and strength. Acts 16, the, the demonic-possessed girl in Philippi who was able to tell the future. Why? Because she's heard it from Christ. 
These demons were so violent, no one could pass that way. Mark 5 adds, uh, Mark 5, by the way, records this same event. Mark has a little more detail. He says, no one was able to bind him anymore with a chain. He had often been bound with shackles and the shackles, the chains had been torn apart and broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. What a terrifying strength. People had chained this guy up and he would just snap the chains like they're flax. Plastic. That is serious strength. Perhaps some of the local villagers saw this guy, how much damage he did. Perhaps five of them or ten of them came and finally were able to subdue them, tie them up with chains, and then run. And he was knocked out, perhaps. And he just shattered them. And these villagers went running for their lives. Mark 5.5 5 furthermore says, Constantly, day and night, these guys, they were screaming among the tombs, gashing themselves with stones. So the demonic possession kept the man from sleeping ever. Imagine just the health effects from this. Gashing himself, the pain that he felt. But the demon just kept doing this over and over, screaming all night. Imagine being a villager that lived in this area. Wake up at night. Are there lions fighting out there in the field? Oh, no. No, it's the guys living down by the tombs that we tried to chain up. Hey, Dad, what's that noise? Son, we've got to stay away from that area. Terror had put in the locals. Perhaps these demon-possessed guys at one point had family and friends, had relationships, worked jobs. They had been totally alienated, written off. It's a terrible thing. And so watch this, verse 28. They, the demon, the two men who were demon-possessed, met him. (laughs) They met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They lived in these tombs. Mark records they ran up to Jesus. As soon as they saw him, they ran up to him and bowed. Why would they do that? What a bizarre scene. Imagine being the disciples. You're in the boat. You get out. And you hear these screaming guys with chains on their wrists and ankles. And they're sprinting to Jesus. Sprinting at you on the beach. The the, the disciples, they're, they're getting in the boat and they're bolting the other way. And they see Jesus standing there. And he stands there and he stands there. And then, boom, these guys hit the deck in the sand and bow to him. They sprint to him to bow to him. What a fascinating scene. Why would they do that? And by the way, they know who he is, though they're in the tombs. They know he's there. They do this because the demons have great doctrine. They understand truth, though they are not saved. They understand lordship. They know who their true ruler is. Not Satan, but Christ. They don't love or obey Christ, but when Christ comes on the scene, they irresistibly run to bow to Him. Because Christ is Lord over this realm and over these powers. The disciples are are going to the bathroom in their pants, and they are running away, 
And the demons are bowing to Jesus as he doesn't even flinch. Because he's Lord. Who can be trusted with these kind of things and everything. They know, the demons know he is God of the universe. Perhaps better than we do sometimes. Demons recognize the master of their master, the God of their God, the king of their king, and the Lord of their Lord, the most high son of God. They cry out, what business, verse 29, do we have with each other, son of God? Which brings us to point number three. We've got to get moving here. Though they torment now, Satan and his forces will eventually be exterminated forever. They torment now. Satan and his forces will be exterminated forever. They cry out. Notice, notice verse 29, what they say. This is critical. What business do we have with each other, son of God? They know who he is. And have you come to torment us? Have you come to torment us before the time? They know Jesus, which means they've had a prior interaction with him. They go way back, Jesus and the demons, way back to the beginning of creation when they rebelled. They know Christ. They know who he is. And notice, have you come to torment us before the time? Notice two things here. The demons know, number one, there is a future time, a time of judgment for them. And number two, they say, have you, Jesus? They don't say, hey, Jesus, has um, Joseph Smith or the Pope or someone else, are they going to judge us? When is that going to happen? No, they say, have you, Jesus? Because they know Jesus is Lord, who's going to put him away eventually. That Jesus is the judge. What is the time? It's Revelation 20, verse 10. It's the future time when Satan and the demons will be thrown into hell or the lake of fire forever. Evil will be put to an end forever. So why do they continue to torment if they know there's a day? Because Satan and evil and sin, are, they're just fundamentally irrational, aren't they? Sin and evil is just irrational all around. That we would ever disobey Christ is just a, it's the most absurd of absurdities. Number three. Number four. Christ, therefore, is Lord over the spiritual and supernatural realm. He is Lord. This is the most important truth of the passage. Christ is Lord over the spiritual and supernatural realm. You don't need to read the book like Drawing Down the Moon by Margot Adler or Anton LaVey's writings. Egyptian Book of the Dead, these kind of things. You just need to know that Jesus is Lord. Verse 30. Now, look at verse 30. Now, there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. Mark's account records that there were how many? If you know, 2,000 head of pig. Again, this confirms Christ is not in Jewish territory because pigs were forbidden. And verse 31, notice, the demons entreat him. They entreat him. The Greek word there, entreat, it means they're begging, they're urging. Why? Because they're inferior. It's an inferior pleading to a superior. They're not asking Satan, but Christ. And verse 32, he said, go. Go. The authority is 
really the, the simplicity of his command is really only surpassed by the authority of it. No, no crusade event, no faith healer coming to town, no mood music. Just Christ with a bunch of terrified young fishermen says, go, get out of here. The word of Christ is sufficient because he is Lord over it all. Alex Konya again writes, put it up here, the striking lack of ritual or incantation in the ministry of Jesus to the demonized was a matter of constant amazement to those who watched. Yes, it was. Because the power is not in a method, but in our master, in the Lord. And verse 32, look back there. And they came out. Yeah, I bet they did. Yeah, they came out. And went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed. Just what comfort our Lord is, our Lord is Lord. First John 3, 8 says, The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning, and the Son of God, Jesus, has appeared for this purpose. Why? Why has he appeared? To destroy the works of the devil. Amen. Number five, because of his love for souls, Christ may allow collateral damage when he saves, when he rescues. Because of his great value or love for souls, because he loves you so much, he loves souls, he may allow for collateral damage in the process of, of, of salvation and sanctification. Collateral damage, incidental fallout, we might say. Just like in, the, in World War II when the U.S. Army Rangers went into the camp of the U.S. POW camp where 500 or so U.S. military forces were being held by the Japanese, Camp Kabanatuan it's called. They were all on the brink of death, starved, diseased. There was some fallout when the Rangers went in and rescued all 500 of them. There was some collateral damage. Why? Because they so valued people. So it is, and far more, when Jesus saves. Verse 32. Notice the last half of verse 32. Look what it says. They came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd, again, 2,000 pigs, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. Imagine 2,000 pigs, this cloud, splashing into the, into the sea. What a scene. A few remarks here. That the demons get 2,000 pigs moving into the sea shows how powerful these things really are, doesn't it? Number two, why did, why did the demons do that? Again, we don't really know. Perhaps because sin and evil is just so irrational and destructive. But number three, the big question that some of you members of PETA and Sierra Club might ask, why would Christ allow 2,000 head of pig to run into the sea? I mean, that's a few thousand bucks and pounds and bacon and pork chops. Why would he allow that? Huge waste of livestock and money for the owners. Don't overlook that. That's a lot of money for whoever the farmer was here. We can say a few things about that. Why he would do this. Number one, being creator. Jesus, they're his. The creation is his. 
He can do whatever He wants with what is His. Can't He? He can do whatever He wishes. Behold, all things are mine. The earth is the mine, mine and everything in it. Psalm 24. But number two, sin. This is also why. Sin makes everything messy, friend. Sin damages everything. So when Christ comes to clean it up, it means there's going to be some collateral damage. Like the army rangers in rescuing the US POWs. There's going to be collateral damage because sin isn't, sin isn't in, a, in a vacuum. Ministry isn't just in a vacuum. There's effects. There's relationships. People's lives. When Christ rescues us from sin and Satan, there will be necessary damage. Here, pigs, and perhaps in your life, and old relationships may need to be broken off. Old habits may need to be broken off. Things like these. Even finances. Things happen when we come to faith in Christ to follow Him. However, as with the pigs, in all cases, though the loss is significant, it is eclipsed by the beauty of Christ's love for souls. It is all eclipsed by how much Christ values a single soul. It's not that He loves His creation less, it's that He loves people more. He loves them more. He loves people who, who, who are living in torment. For this event, for Jesus, it was worth losing 2,000 pigs so that two guys did not have to enter hell and could be rescued from their torment and their misery to follow Jesus Christ and live the most fulfilling life that there is. He loves souls so much. And perhaps He did this to demonstrate to our slow-to-learn minds that He is willing to let A lot of animals perish to show the value, his deep care for people and salvation. And that we should too, friend. Do you value souls like that? I mean, especially in our day, does your life demonstrate that you value souls or animals more? Your pet? Souls are far more important than swine. So the apparent tension of how could Christ let that happen to this, it's it's eclipsed by his love for souls. Number six, we must decide then if we prefer a pig lifestyle or the grace of life in Jesus Christ. We must decide. You must decide, friend. Some of you are living a pig lifestyle. Christ loves people who live pig lifestyles. We must decide if we prefer a pig lifestyle or the grace of life in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 33 with me. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. Mark's account records that the whole city was terrified of the power among them. Luke also says they were gripped with fear, the whole city, because of the sheer power. In verse 34, notice, And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, watch this, they implored him to leave. 
They implored him to leave their region. To get out of here. Go on. Go. Yes, Christ did all this. Oh yeah, we see we see his power. We know Jesus is true. But you know what? Just the, the familiarity of pig farming and my self-flattering, self-comforting lifestyle, that's just that's gonna be preferable. I would rather continue to live in the comfort of my pigs than follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just stick to our pig lifestyle. What about you, friend? Some of you, you're like the, you're like the pig farmers. You, you know Jesus is true. You have a measure of belief. But frankly, changing some of the things in your life, the proverbial pig raising and pig living, you like the mediocrity of it all. Because you can sort of have your Jesus and have your comforts too. But we either follow Christ or nothing. But he's so gracious to you, friend. You, you can repent of the pig lifestyle and not make the error here that these people made. Do you see the majesty of Christ, what he's done in Matthew 8? Calming the storms, healing. In Mark 5, it says, he got into the boat, was imploring that he might accompany. He did not let him. Jesus said to him, go home, tell everybody about me, basically. He's one of the first missionaries sent out by Christ into pagan territory. Believers, this is, this is our mantra here. If we've been changed by Christ, we go and tell people. But some of us believers, we're, we're sort of like the pig farmers. We're sort of like the pig farmers. We, we, we don't really want to venture out of our comfort zone. If you struggled like me, we prefer our sort of proverbial bacon Christianity. And we don't want to get out of our comfort zone to live for Christ and share Christ and obey Christ. You can take that down. That, this, it, all, it all threatens our bacon Christianity, our comfortable pig raising. It's time for us to follow Christ, though. This particular quote from C.S. Lewis I'm going to read to you has been very comforting to me as I've sinned and wanting the pig lifestyle. C.S. Lewis, at one point, screw tape, the older demon says to his demon nephew, he says this. I want you to hear this, please. One of our best weapons against people is simply contented worldliness. One of our best weapons is simply contented worldliness. Worldliness. As we celebrate every first Sunday, we have communion here, the Lord's table. The purpose of the celebration is to remember how we are right with God. To remember the love of Jesus, what he did for us. And, and the symbols on the table help us to remember how we go to heaven, how we are right with God. The, there are symbols. And you'll notice on the table that there is not 
there, there, is, there is not a list of our good works on the table. You'll notice that. On the table, we don't have um, a piece of paper written down of all the ways that we, that we were charitable to people this last month. You'll notice on the table that there is, there's not sticky notes that sort of tally how many hours we've served God this last month. You won't see that on the table. Why won't you see that on the table? Because those are not the things that make us right with God and grant forgiveness. There's not a list of how nice we've been to people. How, how we tried hard. That's not on the table. Those things will never get an individual to heaven. Our sin has to be wiped out by the person and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The elements then on the table symbolize that. The bread, his body, the cup, his blood. Because it is not by works, lest anyone should brag that they themselves got themselves to heaven, that they were a, a good person, a good church person, a good whatever person. It is the death of Jesus Christ alone by which we are made right with God and go to heaven. We'll give you a, a few minutes just to thank God for that. We'll have the band come up here. If, if you ha- need to be saved, if you have yet to bow the knee to Jesus, do so right now. You can ask His forgiveness. Believe in Him. That the cross upon which Jesus died, that's where God dealt with your sin. Great sins, big sins, all sins. He put them there. 1 Peter 2.24, just a verse for us to meditate on as we prepare for communion. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For it's by his wounds, it's by what he did that we are healed. Please, furthermore, do not partake unworthily. Don't come to the table if you have unconfessed sin, if you have sin you're unwilling to repent of. You can just ask God's forgiveness, and when you're ready, come grab the cup and the bread, and I'll direct us to take it.